Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well. Well, that's the hallucination, right? That's like AI hallucination. We have lives, too. <laughs> Mother Shipton's cave. Rich Haddam is coming. Jim Harold is coming. I'm doing a lot of laughing, is it? Mm-hmm. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Masterclass, StoryWorth, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. This week, we are joined by an exceptional guest, Abraham Avi Loeb. You may have heard of him. He's the Frank B. Baird Jr., professor of science at Harvard University who received a doctorate in physics from the University of Jerusalem at just 24. He's written six books and over 800 papers, and Time selected him as one of the 25 most influential people in space. Tonight, he takes time out of his hectic schedule to join us on the eve of his appearance at the annual upcoming Contact in the Desert for 2023, taking place June 2nd through the 4th in Indian Wells, California. As a prolific author and frequent guest in media, you may recognize his name for various reasons. Still, one of them really thrust him into the zeitgeist of discourse surrounding extraterrestrial visitation. In October 2017, an observatory in Hawaii detected the first interstellar object to pass through our solar system. This was a significant discovery. It was named Oumuamua by its discoverers, which is Hawaiian for scout. What if they unknowingly declared its purpose as soon as they called it that? There are a lot of strange things about Oumuamua. Its trajectory, spinning motion, reflectiveness, and lack of a coma or glow around it are just a few. Speculation about what it is, or was, now that it's on its way out of our solar system, is rampant among scientists. Professor Loeb theorizes, based on complex data, that Oumuamua may be an extraterrestrial alien probe. Forget what you think you know about the idea of a spacecraft like that. We're not talking about what you've seen in science fiction movies here. In fact, Professor Loeb would suggest that this craft, if it is one, may be as thin as a sheet of paper, possibly pre-programmed millions of years ago to seek out other civilizations. It may even be derelict at this point, its makers long since lost to time. But whatever it is, some in the scientific community refuse to even discuss the idea that intelligent life may have constructed it, even though so many of its characteristics defy a traditional natural explanation. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. By limiting interpretations or placing blinders on our telescopes, we risk missing discoveries. Recall the clerics who refused to look through Galileo's telescope. From the book Extraterrestrial by best-selling author Avi Loeb. 
Join us tonight for a talk with theoretical physicist Dr. Avi Loeb on whether or not we may have already been visited by another civilization and many other topics. And we're back. That we are, folks. Some quick announcements before we get rolling tonight. Firstly, Forrest has made yet another appearance mm. on History's Greatest Mysteries, so look for Season 3, Episode 15 of that show, which aired originally on May 22nd, 2023, on, wait for it, The Legend of Bigfoot. Ah, uh, yes. We all go squatching with Mr. Fishburne this time. You can also catch both of us on the podcast Beyond the Playlist with our friend Hammond Chamberlain, releasing on May 31st, 2023, to have a little behind-the-scenes chat about managing the show and our personal associated psychosis. Psychosis? Psychosis. So look for Beyond Mm. the Playlist wherever you get your podcasts for that. In other news, this is our last episode before we will be flying off to Ohio to attend Small Town Monsters' first Monster Fest at the Doubletree Hilton in downtown Canton, Ohio on June 2nd and 3rd of 2023, in just a few days. Yes, on June 2nd, we'll be attending the premiere of Small Town Monsters' new movie, On the Trail of Bigfoot, Land of the Missing, at the Canton Palace Theater, and then we'll be at Monster Fest all day Saturday at the Doubletree. Meeting and greeting listeners, recording a show on the spot, and generally just hanging out with a good friend, Rich Haddam, who will also be there. And here's an important announcement about that, that we've been saving until this last show before we go. We're going to be set up with four mics for our recording session there, but there will only be three of us, Scott, me, and Rich, which means that if you're coming to Monster Fest and you have a story you want to tell us or questions you want to sit down and discuss with us, you can come and do that while we're recording. Yes, and there's also a rumor of a downtown Canton ghost walk happening that night, too, that we might join if we're not flipping exhausted. <laughs> yeah. uh, no guarantees on that one, right. but a lot of peeps are pushing us to uh, make that happen. I'm going to see if they can bring like a, a wheelbarrow or something I can ride in. Oh, and around <laughs> oh, 6 p.m. on Saturday yeah. the 3rd, after Monster Fest has wrapped up mm-hmm. and before the ghost walk, we'll be sliding into the speaker room ourselves, along with the paranormal podfather, ah. Mr. Jim Harold, for a meet and greet with any listeners of our show or the 27 other shows that Jim produces <laughs> if folks want to stop by. Nice. No tickets are required required for that. All right. Well, let's get into it here with Avi. Yeah, we actually did seem to get him riled up a little bit. He's got strong opinions mm-hmm. and, and they're well-founded and well-backed up. I, I enjoyed talking to him a lot. Well, I have to admit something here. Yeah. I wasn't actually there for the interview until like the last five minutes. I, I was really hungry and I went off and got a sandwich. I just had my video on a loop. So... <laughs> Uh, you probably you didn't notice. All. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, but no, I, uh, from what I hear is it's terrific. Seriously though, it, it is quite a fascinating discussion. And one thing that I love about, uh, Dr. Loeb is that, uh, he's an educator, so he's able to explain things to yes. the layperson, and that's what we loved about it. And he doesn't pull any punches and he tells you exactly what he thinks. And, uh, we both really admire and appreciate that. Definitely. All right, Sarah, let's roll this first segment of our discussion with Dr. Loeb. First of all, thank you so much for making the time. This is an honor. We're very excited to talk to you. Oh, sure. Definitely. You are most welcome. So let's get started. Folks, we would like to welcome Dr. Avi Loeb to our show. This is a very exciting interview for us. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time, Dr. Loeb. And uh, maybe you could tell our listeners, uh, maybe you could give them a little background about what you're up to these days. Oh, there is a lot going on. Let me just give a few highlights. We have the Galileo project that I established a year and a half ago, and uh, we're funded by private donations. Uh, We have a website where anyone interested can donate the funds. And 
Right now, we have an operating observatory at Harvard University, which monitors the sky 24-7 in the infrared, optical, radio, and audio. And we are using those uh, data to um, find any natural objects in the sky, like birds or human-made objects like uh, balloons, uh, drones, or airplanes, and uh, see if there is anything else. And uh, that's at one location. We are planning to make copies of this observatory in the coming months. And the number of copies will depend on how much funding we have. In principle, if we have tens of millions of dollars, we could pretty much get uh, to the bottom of uh, what these unidentified aerial phenomena that the government is talking about are all about. And uh, in fact, I had communicated with uh, the new office in government, uh, Aero, and in fact, tomorrow there will be a hearing uh, at, in, in the Senate uh, about their latest uh, work over the past uh, year since the office was established under the directorship of Sean uh, Kirkpatrick. So that's one interesting aspect of uh, my work. This summer, 2023, we are planning an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to look for the relics of the first interstellar meteor. It was the first object from outside the solar system originally detected by U.S. government sensors in 2014, and we identified it as an interstellar object with my student, Amir Siraj, and um, the government confirmed this uh, discovery in an official letter to NASA and released data about a fireball of this object that allowed us to infer that it was tougher by at least a factor of 10 than all previous meteors recorded by the U.S. government in the catalog of meteors compiled by NASA. This is a very intriguing object in the sense that it's, uh, it has a material strength at least 10 times more than even iron meteorites. And the fundamental question is whether it originated from a system very different than the solar system because it's much tougher than all the space rocks we had seen from the solar system, or maybe it was artificial in origin, a spacecraft made of some artificial alloy and we should be able to figure it out by collecting the fragments and uh, studying their composition. So that will happen in a few months. Um, I have full funding at one and a half million dollars from, again, a donor. And we are going on this expedition. And uh, let's see what we find. Is that the one that, uh, that you think came down near New Guinea? We don't think. We know. We recently analyzed the data, this seismic data, the sound, the blast wave that was generated by the explosion of this meteor, it was recorded by a seismometer on Manus Island in the Pacific Ocean. And we analyzed that data and were able to pinpoint the location to within one square kilometer, which is a hundred times better in terms of area than the original uh, data from the Department of Defense that was publicly available. So we now know exactly where it was and we are going to search that uh, region. That's the way science is done. It's done by collecting data with instruments and analyzing the data and figuring out the answer. It's not, as I was discussing yesterday at the podcast, someone was asking me, why don't you listen to eyewitness testimonies? And I say, well, you know, even FIFA in the soccer World Cup in uh, Qatar used the video cameras to figure out whether there was a penalty. They didn't go to the players and ask them, do you think there was a penalty or, or ask people on the bench, you know, like uh, watching it. And so that's the way science is done. And for some reason, there are people in the public that do not appreciate that. They keep arguing that humans are very good detectors. And I say, look, if 
there is a car accident and people are involved, you know, you ask different people involved and each of them gives you a different report. Look at politics. Actually, the person arguing with me was giving the example of politics. He said, don't you see that people have reasonable opinions? I said, no, actually, if you look at politics, there are people with exactly opposite opinions that are even willing to use force against each other, demonstrating that human opinions are completely irrelevant as to what really happened in reality. So um, that's the way science is done. And it's just news to me that such a big portion of the public is not appreciating the fact that instruments are be- have been used for a century now. And that's the basis for our scientific understanding of the world. That's why we have cell phone, iPhones, uh, internet, computers, AI, all of this would not come to fruition if we just listen to what people think about reality rather than measuring it and trying to understand what the measurements mean. It's all based on instruments. And somehow the public got the the impression that actually it's humans having opinions about the world that brought us so far. And I always give this example of humans thinking for a thousand years after Aristotle that um, the universe centers on us. And everyone says, oh, it's obvious. Look at the sun. It, it rises and sets, you know, <laughs> obvious. So everyone agreed to that. It was common folklore. Everyone, they were willing to put Galileo in house arrest for uh, contradicting that. And so I say, don't listen to people. Social media is irrelevant as to what really, uh, you know, happens in our cosmic neighborhood. For that, we need to use our telescopes. And that's what the Galileo project is doing. So, um, Of course, the third branch of the Galileo project is to look for another object, like the interstellar object Oumuamua, which was discovered in 2017 that looked very weird. And I talked about it in my book, Extraterrestrial. I have a new book coming out uh, in August 2023 called The Interstellar, and we can talk about it. I also had, um, just a week ago, I had 25 filmmakers and producers write emails to me with interest in producing a documentary about my work, my research. And also a week ago, I had um, a playwright approach me with an email. And in the title of this email, he wrote Avi Loeb on Broadway. And I thought that this is uh, just an April Fool's Day joke. But then he attached some uh, photographs from his cell phone and they had a serial number and, and they showed Barbara Streisand and Dick Van Dyke, and I said, okay, well, this must be real then. And um, he's already written part of that play. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, just to let you know, there is a lot going on. You know, we can spend the entire hour just about the things that happened to me over the past two weeks. Well, this is Dr. Loeb's theme here running through, is that what science really should be counting on is not impressions so much as perhaps impressions formulated by the data. And taking accurate data that you can agree upon and then formulating speculations, but be willing to do that. But again, go to the data first. Don't have your preconceived notions coloring all that. Let's look at what's actually there. And we say this all the time, whether it's the the Patterson-Gimlin film, whether it's the messenger versus the message, is that it should all be considered. But look at the message. And in this case, the message is the data. So there you go. Draw your conclusions once you attained all the data and you can verify it, then you formulate your theories and right. hypotheses, the difference between the two we've always talked about, but uh, theories being more, I guess, thought out, provable, not just assumptions, which you shouldn't be doing. Don't make assumptions. Be open-minded that you might not understand what the data is saying, what the picture is in there. 
Yeah. We talked about this a lot. It's a little to me like The Matrix in that you see the symbols coming down the screen in green, or even computer programmers. When they look at that, I've had friends that when they see a line of code, they say like, well, that's a YouTube video. And it looks like this. It's about this big. It should go here. This is what brings it up. They tend to see the data, the digits, the numbers as the functioning things that we take for granted that the layperson here sees with their eyes. So you have to be open-minded about what this data is telling you and don't lock onto a preconceived picture, let's say, of what you think that represents. Because as we've learned here, and this was the big surprising thing, it's not exactly what we all think. Yes, and let's talk a little bit about the Galileo Project, which he just mentioned, which is, uh, you can find that homepage at Harvard. I want to read this mm -hmm. right off their page there. The Galileo Project for the Systematic Scientific Search for Evidence of Extraterrestrial Technological Artifacts. That's the title of the project there. The goal of the Galileo Project is to bring the search for extraterrestrial technological signatures of extraterrestrial technological civilizations, or ETCs, like et cetera, ETCs, mm -hmm from accidental or anecdotal observations and legends to the mainstream of transparent, validated, and systematic scientific research. This project is complementary to traditional SETI in that it searches right. for physical objects and not electromagnetic signals associated with extraterrestrial technological equipment. Right. This is a thing. It's not a broadcast in a way. It's an right. actual object, right? So we've mentioned this a long time ago that uh, when the SETI project was happening with, I think the first computer I ever bought for myself, uh, it's a Mac clone. And I was excited to have the screensaver be part of the SETI contribution, right? They yes. were using a crowdsourcing That was the computer. SETI at home project. Right, that's right. Yes, I was in that too. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the idea, folks, is that they have so much data to process so many signals. Well, it's the universe. Come on. So you have so many of these signals that it really takes up too much computer processing power, especially back then. This would be yeah. the mid-90s for me anyway. Uh -huh. Yeah. That you didn't have the processing power like you would need with a quantum computer to crunch all the numbers. So what they did was they gave it to everybody who wanted to download this screensaver, let's say, or when your computer was sleeping overnight a little bit of data, and then it's pretty smart. And they gave it yeah. to everybody out there for their computers to process it, and then it was done, it would send it back to SETI for analysis. I loved this because, and I think we've mentioned it on the show once before, maybe a long time ago. I'm thinking maybe when we talked about the Fermi paradox, we might mm -hmm. have mentioned this. And if I'm right about that, then my brain isn't going as, as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> I didn't look that right. up, folks. I think yeah. it's in there. But anyway, the graphics for it, they did a really cool animation. The screensaver, right. when it was analyzing the radio signals, you would see these really cool like line graphics of the signals it was going Yeah, that's right. Essentially, what it was doing was taking a segment of collected data from the radio telescopes that SETI had yeah. charge of periodically and parsing that out. It was a crowd computing program, one of the first ones, and parsing that out mm -hmm. to anybody that wanted to put on a screensaver. I'm going to have to go ahead and confess, I've been gone from this particular company over 20 years now, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it had a bunch of <laughs> Avid editing systems. These were $300,000 yeah. computers back then. Right. And I 
secretly loaded it onto all of them and every yeah. and there were six of them in this place that I worked at and every night when everyone left all six of them were crunching SETI signals <laughs> right <laughs> which is it's an infinitesimally small fraction of the data but yes. everybody yes. contributed but that's that's part. the idea is that right we're all doing our part well it's just like Jodie Foster in contact that's what she's doing she's aiming these radio telescopes and looking for what was called before the wow signal remember that yes. story we've talked about that yeah. which apparently wasn't all that wow yeah. But it's an anomaly in that it's not the usual background scattered data that uh, and signal that you get. This is something that has a pattern that is significantly unnatural, let's say, than what we're usually getting, and you should pay attention. Right. And so when she locks on, it's like you you move the antenna a little this way, okay, back the other way, okay, now they've locked onto the signal, and what is it saying to us? What is the message that is embedded into the signal? And we talked about this before, oddly enough, with crop circles, that strange sound. And I proposed, it's like, uh, Scott and I are talking, if you're going to talk about uh, video editing here, remember a time code, when you hear it with your ears, which is a, a thing, right? It's a sound. It's like a, like that. It doesn't make any sense. But if you yeah. plug that into a machine, it's actually counting down numbers, right. uh, frame accurate for 30 frames per second, yeah. or actually 29.97 for drop frame video in that it's actually a thing. What we're talking about here, the difference is that they're looking for actual objects, not signals right. so much. We're not talking about a signature. It's like, you can see it, it's there. Right. You're getting data bouncing off an object, not some radio signal from a, a quasar pulsar coming from a, a hundred million years ago in the distant past, and we're finally just now getting it. This thing's here, right? visiting. Hi, I'm Ty Pursley, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. If you want to check this out a little bit further, go to the Galileo Project at Harvard. Just Google it. It comes right up. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Right on the front page there, there's a YouTube video, which we might be able to embed on the uh, show page for this episode as well. It's a four-minute video. It shows the team they have. I think it's about 70 people. Dr. Loeb is on there. He talks about what they've done in the first year. But the crux of this is that serious scientific minds are looking for hard data about possible anomalies both in and out of our atmosphere. And all we can say is it's about damn time. And this is really cool. They, they've got these uh, students, they're excited. They're up on a roof of a building at Harvard with all this high-tech gear. And uh, a lot of this, they're funding with donations. You can make donations. We'll have a, a link to that as well. But this is where the real evidence is going to be gathered. This is going to be data that we don't have to worry if it's CGI or mid-journey mm -hmm. or some other AI faked thing. This is data that we can trust and analyze. Listen to these four project ground rules that are on the uh, main page for the project. One, we do not work with classified information or unreliable past data. Two, our analysis of the data is based on known physics. Three, our data and analysis will be freely published, documented, and archived. And four, no results will be released except through scientifically accepted channels of publication. So they're going to submit everything for peer review, scientific peer right. review, from the data, using the sensors. This is a by-the-book operation, but it's a by-the-book operation to find things that are currently unknown to science, which is what I think is really cool about it. Mm -hmm. The next thing we talked to Abby about was the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or the ARRO, which is headed up by his colleague, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick. They actually co-authored a scientific paper titled 
Physical Constraints on Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which is currently under peer review. And Forrest, I think you have the abstract from that paper. Would you share yeah. that with our listeners? Yeah, that reads as, we derive physical constraints on interpretations of, quote, highly maneuverable, end quote, unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, based on standard physics and known forms of matter and radiation. In particular, we show that the friction of UAP with the surrounding air or water is expected to generate a bright optical fireball, ionization shell, and tail, implying radio signatures. The fireball luminosity scales with inferred distance to the fifth power. Radar cross-section scales similarly to meteor head echoes as the square of the effective radius of the sphere surrounding the object, while the radar cross-section of the resulting ionization tail scales linearly with the radius of the ionization cylinder. The lack of all of these signatures could imply inaccurate distance measurements and hence derive velocity for single-site sensors without a range gate capability. Okay, great. What does that mean? I was hoping you would tell us. I know that's it's not the easily it gets the further uh, you get into the abstract. Yeah, the if you're mowing the lawn, if you're knitting something, <laughs> you're uh, you're repairing violins right now. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. What we think that means is that they're uh, trying to quantify what one should expect when recording anomalous phenomena. And what's great about this is that it sets the stage for what happens when you collect data on something that appears to be a UAP, but it doesn't follow or react to these physical constraints that we understand. Right. And so I think the first thing that Avi suggests here is that if that happens, something must be wrong with the data, which right. is exactly where you should start. And I, I'm certainly not implying anything about his beliefs here, but for me, it was generally understood that he is only interested in the data collected and that if the data does not conform to the laws of physics, then something's wrong with the sensors. Right. I, again, I always liked what Dr. Russell Targ, a physicist as well, yeah. and again, groundbreaking work with lasers, talked about psi capabilities, right? Psychic yeah. uh, and yes, remote viewing. The data collected from these experiments, the consensus of the scientists were that they accepted the data. They thought it was collected properly, but they had a problem with the implications of the data, right. which is kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah. Is that, okay, we got this data. Well, first of all, you have to be able to agree on a data set. It's like, do we agree that this is accurate? That what it's showing is what the numbers are, and those are irrefutable. But what are we then saying? Is this thing uh, shaped like a giant cigar, or is it paper thin? What's going on here? Those are the conclusions that you draw from it. Now, that's a whole different thing, and that's where people start to disagree. But it's like what you're saying here with the UAP, if it doesn't make sense, go back and check the data, because right. that is where you should start. Right. Is it collected, or is this uh, accurate? And here's my thing about this, is that if you determine that, well, uh, we ran a bunch of tests over and over again, it seems to be accurate, then you still don't dismiss it. You then are like, okay, what does that mean then? What are we really looking at here? So what I think what's so great about that is that when you follow this logic, if he or his team or any project under his supervision were to collect data that defied the laws of physics and no errors were found in the sensors, then we all have to be open to a new line of thinking, which I think he's fine with. But he's going to want to categorically rule out every other possibility first. And this is the way that the UAP analysis should have been done from the start. And that's the scientific method. And I think it's probably safe to say that technology more recently has gotten to a point where we can ascertain a lot about what is and isn't happening 
with these yeah. things. We've got all kinds of new sensors that it seems like have just come into existence in the past right. couple of decades. They can track things. They can lock on. Cameras can see things. It's high resolution. Right. They can see at night. They can see on different spectrums. Some of it obviously still classified, which he's saying specifically, we're not working with classified. We're working with unclassified information that everyone has access to and that we can scientifically study. Right. Well, just imagine if they could study the classified data yeah. and what we're not being told about. Maybe we are. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't believe that, that they're sitting on physical materials, data that they're not making public just yet. Yeah. Well, let's get back to our discussion now. First, let's talk about this hearing tomorrow. Are you participating in the hearing? No. Okay. I will watch it from home. But I should say that I did communicate with people from Arrow over the past uh, six months. What are you expecting to come out of this or what do they look? What kind of what's the hearing about technically? I think it's about Aero, um, the the findings and the uh, ambitions that they have in you know figuring out the puzzle of unidentified aerial phenomena. So just to remind everyone, these are objects in the sky. I mean, people can talk forever about objects that were discovered 50 years ago, 30 years ago. The point is, you know, it was either eyewitness testimonies or that we don't have very convincing data. And what I'm saying always is that the data we can collect with the Galileo Observatory just in a few weeks is much, much more than all those past data combined. Right. So the point is, we should look to the future, not the past, which has been the practice of this community. And of course, Arrow wants to understand those objects that are not clearly identified. So, you know, what that means is that obviously, if there is an object with a label made in China, then, you know, they know what it means. And that's a matter of national security and they shoot down such balloons, right? We heard right. about it. Right. And so that's not an unidentified aerial phenomenon. If you see balloons, it's not a UAP. If you see a drone, it's not a, an unidentified object. So the question is, what about those objects that were not identified? Okay. And of course, if you have better data, you could potentially make them identified. You could tell that they are a balloon that was not resolved. Okay. That's a very possible outcome. And the fundamental question, as far as I'm concerned, as a scientist, you know, the government, of course, should not miss any object that could be of national security concern. Right. So they need to know if UAP are a threat to the nation. Right. That's why they cannot ignore it. That's why the Senate uh, needs to discuss it. Right. 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 At the same time, I argue that the scientific community cannot ignore it because there is also a chance that one of these objects, even if only one, right, is of extraterrestrial origin, even if only one, it would change everything. It would change the way we perceive our place in the universe. And once again, it's irrelevant if people keep shouting, oh, there was something 30 years ago and it was reported by some tribe in, uh, I don't know, some deserted island. I don't care about it. That's not scientific data. What I want to know, I want to see the data, analyze it the way we do in science. And only then will we have clear evidence for what this object might be, or at least not be. We can rule out the possibility that it is human-made or natural in origin, and then uh, try to figure out what it means. So my point is, the past is not evidence for the nature of objects. You have to see them with good instruments. And in that sense, the goals of Arrow and the goals of the Galileo project align. 
even though you know government may be interested in national security matters, science is not because science does not adhere to national borders. Science is representing knowledge that should be shared by all humans because it's about the universe. Just think about the fact that we discovered a century ago that most of the ordinary matter is made of hydrogen. Right. That would not be the preview of the United States uh, president to know first, and only the president would know that hydrogen fills makes most of the ordinary matter. Who like this has nothing to do with the United States. Okay, so all scientists knew about it. All humans could know about it as soon as it was discovered. The same is true if we find something in our backyard that is of extraterrestrial origin. It has nothing to do with the United States specifically because it had to travel for millions of years. The United States did not exist millions of years ago. Okay, the nearest star, you know, even traveling with rockets from the nearest star will take a fraction of a million years. The nearest star from the edge of the galaxy, it would take half a billion years. We were not around back then. There was no United States. The president of the United States is not the only one that needs to know about it. So that hearing happened a few weeks ago, and all the headlines were that there was no credible evidence of UFOs. But that's not what it seems like when you pay attention to the hearing. So, Scott, why don't you share some of what those articles say? Yeah, here's one of the better articles from this. This is from Space.com, dated April 19th by Brett Tingley. The headline is, Pentagon has no credible evidence, in quotes, of aliens or UFOs that defy physics. I want to emphasize this headline again. Mm -hmm. No credible evidence of aliens or UFOs with the quantifier that defy physics. They're not saying... This, even this headline is not saying we don't have evidence of aliens or UFOs. They're just saying yeah. none that are defying physics. Okay. Still, that's going to yeah. surprise some people. But here, let's listen to this article. The director of the Pentagon's new UFO office shot down hopes that the current buzz over unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP, supports claims of extraterrestrial visitation. Sean M. Kirkpatrick, chosen as the first director of the Pentagon's new All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO, testified before members of the United States Senate Committee on Armed Services on Wednesday, April 19th, and the hearing had two portions, one closed to the public, Hmm. pregnant pause, and one open. During the open portion, Kirkpatrick definitively stated that out of the hundreds of UAP cases his office has reviewed, quote, AARO has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, or objects that defy the known laws of physics, end quote. There's two things I want to say about this. In the mm-hmm. closed session, they talked about how they were going to say they found nothing. Right. But and then <laughs> in the open session. And mm-hmm. then also, I don't know if you can say off-world. That was in Blade Runner. I feel like they're uh, mm-hmm. co-opting the uh, German expressionist masterpiece that Blade Runner was. But here oh. we go. The AARO director acknowledged that this conclusion might be unsatisfying to those who believe they have witnessed incontrovertible evidence of physics-defying craft or objects. And we know a few of those people. Hmm. Still, Kirkpatrick stressed UAP cases most often, quote, resolve into readily explainable sources, end quote, when there is a wealth of scientific data at hand. And I would agree with that most of the time. Mm -hmm. Quote, I want to underscore today that only a very small percentage of UAP reports display signatures that could reasonably be described as anomalous, end quote, Kirkpatrick stated in Wednesday's hearing. The majority of unidentified objects reported to AARO demonstrate mundane characteristics of balloons, uncrewed aerial items, clutter, natural phenomena, or other readily explainable sources. He added that if anyone has any evidence of otherworldly visitation or, or alternative theories, they should submit that evidence for peer review in scientific journals. Again, that's Kirkpatrick mm-hmm. and Loeb. That's their take on everything. He said AARO is working very hard to do the same. 
this is how science works, not by blog or social media, right. which, again, valid point. However, the, here's the other thing that's interesting. A lot of people saw this video. During the opening portion of the hearing, Kirkpatrick shared a video that his office analyzed reportedly showing what appears to be a spherical object that was filmed by an MQ-9 Reaper drone somewhere in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. In the video, the object appears to soar through the air with no apparent means of propulsion. While the footage certainly is captivating, Kirkpatrick stressed that there simply aren't enough data collected to make an accurate assessment of what the spherical object or phenomena in the video might be. Quote, this is essentially all of the data we have associated with this event from some years ago, end quote. Kirkpatrick told the Senate committee, quote, it is going to be virtually impossible to fully identify that just based off that video, end quote. And then they go back here to the report published in 2023 that we, I think I actually read this report and posted it <laughs> online mm, yeah. in our, as a drop on our uh, RSS feed. Out of the over 500 UFO UAP cases examined for that report, many of them were found to lack enough detailed data to enable attribution of UAP with high certainty. And there's more information here just about how many were balloons and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Anyway, so that article, I think there's a lot of things it is saying and a lot of things it isn't saying. Right. I think here's the thing. It's like Kirkpatrick's statement is saying, look, we've got no credible evidence of anything defying the laws of physics here. Uh, we got some strange footage of the sphere, but there's not enough data, so that can't even be considered. Which right. again tracks with Avi's position, as you'll hear tonight. But that footage of a sphere traveling behind the Reaper drone, doing surveillance in the Middle East, pretty clearly filmed is something that they have no idea what it could be or how it works. Now, for the AARO and Kirkpatrick, there's no data to analyze beyond the video, so there's nothing to be said about it. And on top of that, they're finding very little to say about these things in general because they keep not finding evidence of the laws of physics being broken. Sorry to disrupt your flow for a second. Are yeah. they talking also or including the sensor data they got about the Tic Tac video? There's no mention of that. There's no and mention that's of that. That's a question because, I have too. Well, here's the other thing. We've since had reports that have been made public uh, through Jeremy Corbell and is weaponized. Uh, there are reports as well. Like I said, I thought the Tic Tac video was, and again, it's not going at the speed of light, which that's right. uh, <laughs> other than light itself or photons. You know, that's, of course, going to capture our imaginations and attention. I'm wondering, though, when they say this thing traveled from like, uh, sea level to 60,000 feet in a matter of seconds, it's like, well, are they considering that not to break the laws of physics of objects that we could know about or manufacture that would do that? Yeah. What are the parameters here and what they're talking about? Because again, some objects, as uh, you and I have talked about a little bit, it went from the, above the surface of the water into the water and was tracked by a submarine and exhibiting maneuvers, characteristics that are impossible for anything underwater to travel like that, that we know of. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. In fact, I thought the Tic Tac defied physics. Right. Now, granted, I studied radio, television, and film in college, so <laughs> I'm probably not the best person to no, identify yeah. something breaking the rules of physics. But I'm a little confused about it all, and I'd, I'd like to give a more definitive position on sure. it right now, but I'm still collecting data personally too. But I will say I respect the approach these scientists are taking but I can also see why some folks think it's whitewashing things. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you can't just take a video of a sphere that you see for a few seconds and stop the world and say, aliens are real. There's just not enough information. Right. That's what I'm saying is that's the scientific And that's thing what is... he doesn't like. I can see, and you'll see yeah. in the discussion tonight, Dr. Loeb, he doesn't like that anecdotal, like, ah, I don't care. It's like <laughs> you, you might as well be talking to somebody who saw a car crash 
it doesn't matter if you don't have hard data on it. That's true. So all you have is a visual. Well, that we know of. And like I said, yeah. sensor data. So that clip that you and I looked at that was on Twitter recently, that I believe you asked Jeremy uh, online on Twitter yeah. about it. Yes. About the date and this and that. And you heard a naval officer say, okay, this thing splashed. Track its trajectory, its distance, and the time it uh, did enter the water splash down. And I think at that point, it may have been tracked also by a submarine. Right. Now, what we don't know, though, is that, uh, like I said, all they have is that video. And all we have is that video of just something glowing yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And here's the other thing about that. If it did go underwater and was tracked by a submarine, that's one thing we're never going to hear. If there's <laughs> right. any more secretive branch of mm. any part of the military, it's naval submarines. They're not going to be talking about, yeah, it came down. We tracked it all the way to Hawaii. We used these sensors, and this is how fast it went. That's yeah, not, not where they are, but you can get, uh, and I would trust a report that just said uh, when it entered the water, it was a track and it was very anomalous that it yeah. didn't move like anything that we know about. So that's all you, the information you get. What right. I'm saying is that that information is not being made. So what you're seeing here from scientists is like, look, if it's just a video, yeah. you just have yeah. an image of something and that's not enough. Yeah. You can analyze that, but it's really lacking. So don't You need all the sensor data from every sensor that was pointed at it if right. they were able to get data, which is why the Galileo project is putting all these sensors on the roofs of these yeah. buildings. It's like, we're going to track anything that goes overhead, which is something that our friend, Dr. Uh, Coswell, Chris yeah, Coswell Sky was Hub. working on a project for that. This is the same kind of thing, but I think with a, a little more gear at its disposal, thanks to Harvard. So, you know, we'll see what happens there and also donations. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll have a link to that. As we said, I'm not disagreeing with this, but I do feel like there's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of like, okay, well, we don't have data, so we're just not going to talk about it. I don't want to just not talk about it, right? but I get why you think it's a waste of time to talk about it if all you've got is like a crappy VHS from a Reaper drone. Well, <laughs> yeah, look, there is a <laughs> lot more, I believe this, that we're not hearing about, of course. The way we all react, the way that uh, UFO Twitter reacts, it's making a lot of people upset there yeah. and elsewhere. And the idea, though, is maybe we're not ready for the big secrets if we're going to behave like this. Then again, I think some of us are. You just can't you know, judge the general sweep of people's reactions. But I don't think it's going to be War of the Worlds. And again, we had a whole episode on that. It wasn't as bad as what popular culture believes afterwards. In that yeah. it wasn't the mass hysteria, quote unquote. And again, that term's not even applicable or, or right about that as a social contagion. It wasn't all that bad. However, then you had uh, Quinto Ecuador and it, it was kind of bad. So, but yeah. <laughs> that was, and again, it's hard to judge how people are going to react. But with this, like I said, let's ask the questions. Well, I mean, to me, that's the fun part about it. Not just say like, well, don't look at the video again. Don't look in the telescope. Don't look at the data. It's not enough. The fact that it exists at all, and again, you can look at something that is, a, let's say, a ghost photo, the Madonna of Bachelor's Grove, and you look at it, it's like, well, that's got to be an anomaly in the camera, or you faked it because ghosts don't exist, and and uh, good, well done, it looks creepy, but we're not going to look at that photo because, again, ghosts cannot exist. There is no life beyond death, and I say, well, there it is on film, and you're not going to get an answer, but look at the photo. There's no harm in considering uh, the photo itself. And then doing a little research, like who does she look like? Anybody that uh, we have a photo of uh, from the past. 
And so you have to compare all this stuff. It's like you see the uh, the ball, and here's the weird thing to me is that uh, that's the the Baghdad object is got a, a gunmetal sheen to it that's kind of uh, matte, but you can see the sun reflecting off of it. It's a ball. Yeah. It's not a lens flare. It's not. It's an actual object that doesn't have propellers. Right. Some of these things do, and again, under infrared uh, fil- different filters, they can see that it has some kind of exhaust, but it's not like a regular jet exhaust. There yeah. may be heat, there may be gases, uh, some things off-gassing. But it's but... not defying by their parameters right. the laws of physics necessarily. Right. It's, you can't clearly see how it's being propulsed, right. if that's a word. They're also like, it's not defying the laws of physics. It's not blinking in and out of existence. Well, that's what, I'm saying. Not, that's what I was about to say. If, if it disappeared, if it vanished, yeah. and not just so fast that the cameras couldn't capture it, but, but it actually just turned invisible. Well, right. we have cloaking technology now. I mean, it's, it's a little hokey, but of course, people have been experimenting on this for, for decades now, and that you have cameras on one side of an object taking video of uh, of the backside and then the side that's facing you is a projection of that backside and it appears to be invisible but it's not actually still there right now that's an illusion that is a stage magician's trick but if it's actually not there anymore and it disappeared in an instant well that seems to me like it's breaking the laws of physics but what do i know could you tell our listeners a little bit about project breakthrough starshot and and what the goal of that is yeah, so that then started in uh, summer, May, actually, 2015, when I had a visit to my office at Harvard by a former physicist and entrepreneur from Silicon Valley named uh, Yuri Milner, who asked me whether I'm willing to lead a project that will reach the nearest star system within uh, our lifetime. And what that meant is that it will get there within a couple of decades, because both Yuri and I are roughly the same age. We're about uh, 60 years old. So um, uh, I know that the nearest star is four light years away. It takes light four years. So that means that the spacecraft needs to move at the fifth of the speed of light if you want to get there in 20 years. And that's very challenging. So I told him I need to think about it with my research group for about six months. And then uh, after going through all possibilities, we realized the only viable technology is that of a light sail, meaning pushing a sail that is the size of a person, like a few meters in size, uh, that is very lightweight, a few grams, with a very powerful laser of 100 gigawatt. And then you can show that uh, if you do that for a few minutes, if you shine such a powerful laser on such a sail, it can reach a fifth of the speed of light across a distance that is five times the distance to the moon. And you can just shoot it like a bullet towards the Alpha Centauri system, and it will get there in 20 years. You can put probes on it, like a camera, communication device, navigation device. That was the concept. And of course, the advantage relative to chemical rockets is that you don't need to carry the fuel because you're pushing it with light. And also it can reach a fraction of the speed of light because you're pushing it with light. If you were pushing it with anything else, it won't reach such high speeds. So the question is, in the context of what we were discussing before, if there was a starshot-like probe passing near the Earth, would we notice? Or even if it was to collide with the Earth, would we notice? And the answer is probably not if it were passing near the Earth, because 
it moves too fast by a factor of 10,000 relative to asteroids or comets that astronomers usually monitor. So it will appear only once in an image of an astronomer and people, astronomers would just dismiss it. And moreover, it moves so fast that nobody would say it's reasonable to imagine that there is a real object passing by. And moreover, it's just the size of a person, a hundred times smaller than Oumuamua, which was the minimum size of an object that we can detect with existing telescopes, survey telescopes, as a result of the reflection of sunlight from the surface of the object. So this kind of an object, the size of a person, you know, would be 10,000 times fainter than Oumuamua was at, at the same distance. And as a result, you know, we wouldn't notice it. 10,000 times makes it extremely faint. And the answer is no. In all current observations of the sky, astronomers would never notice such an object. Unless, of course, it comes really close to us or collides with the Earth. If it collides with the Earth, it will burn up in the atmosphere and it will be like a meteor. And I actually wrote a paper about meteors moving at this, a fraction of the speed of light. But it was a new paper. People didn't think about it before. And, you know, the astronomy community is not really geared to looking for interstellar objects. In fact, it was, you know, the Oumuamua was discovered by, by accident, by chance, just because it came close to Earth. And it moved at a speed that is only a few times bigger than the typical speed of asteroids or, or comets. That's why it was noticed. If it was moving at 10 or 100 times faster speed, nobody would notice it. And the meteors, you know, we discovered with my student, Amir Siraj, and we faced very strong objections from people who are used to finding rocks. They basically rejected, blocked the paper from being published just because it was not them finding it. And then the U.S. government, you know, the Department of Defense came to my defense, which is very unusual because you expect the scientific community to be much more open-minded, blue sky oriented, yet it's the government that I need help from, which is a very strange situation. And of course, the government is the first to recognize unusual objects in the sky because it's part of their day job to monitor the sky. That's what they get paid for. Okay, so a, a couple of very quick questions. I do have some specific questions um, about Oumuamua. Uh, Force and I both do, but one one question I wanted to ask you about light sails in general. The first thing is, I thought that over large distances, lasers actually did the light did disperse a little bit. Does it not? Does it stay tight enough that you could focus it on that craft indefinitely? No, of course, that's the main limitation. So that's why you need a powerful laser so that you you will be able to accelerate the sail quickly enough so that it doesn't go a large distance before the laser disperses. Okay. And the whole point is you tune the power of the laser such that within the distance that the laser can be focused, you will reach the terminal speed that you're aiming at. Okay. okay. So that's exactly the reason you need a powerful laser. If you were using just a laser pointer, it would push it so slowly that, you won't be able to keep it focused on the sail. So then the next question I have, I've used to sail a lot. I understand how sailing with wind works, low pressure on the other side of the sail. I don't understand how the laser in space or the sunlight reflecting on a muamua would propel it. How does that work? Is there low pressure or? Uh, did you ever play tennis? Yes. Okay. So when you play tennis and the ball hits your racket, you feel some push, right? Right. From the ball bouncing back. 
So the same push occurs when a molecule of air bounces off the sail on a sailboat. Okay. And that's why when you have wind, the wind is just molecules of air moving in one direction. Right. Just to explain, a temperature, the temperature of air represents random motions of the molecules. So they move in all directions at the same, roughly the same speed, thermal speed. But wind is having these molecules move together in some preferred direction, okay? So instead of just moving randomly, they are moving together. That's what a wind is. And it's usually propelled, as you said, by having a high pressure at one point and a low pressure at another. So the air flows from the high pressure to the low pressure, and that gives it a directional speed. Now, a sailboat uses that motion of directed motion of the air molecules. So what happens is the molecules bounce off the sail just like the tennis ball bounces off your mm -hmm. racket. And as a result, it pushes the sail. By the way, it's the same mechanism that rockets or uh, jet planes use, uh, but they just throw molecules backwards and they get pushed forward. That's the rocket effect. Here, the molecules of air come towards the sail, bounce back, but actually give it a push for the same reason. Okay. Okay. It's called momentum conservation. Right. And so the same can happen if you now replace the molecules of air with the particles of light. Light is made of particles called photons. And when those bounce off a material surface, let's say a mirror, they give it a push. And usually the push is very small. But if you make your mirror lightweight, then uh, you would feel this push. And the push is not very effective if you are talking about very low power lasers or light sources, but um, as you pump the source of light, the, the power of the beam of light uh, higher and higher, eventually you get to enough thrust to reach high speeds over a short distance. So that's the whole idea of uh, light sails. And of course, you can use the light coming from a natural source like the sun, a star, or you can use it from an artificial source, like a laser beam. And the advantage of a laser beam is you can focus the light. In the case of the sun, it's going in all directions. I should say that um, there is this concept uh, of a Dyson sphere. You must have heard about it. Yes. That's mega structure that uh, Freeman Dyson imagined that the advanced civilizations will build around a star so that they can harvest the light. And the problem is you can't really make it of a rigid, material like an iron sphere because there are huge stresses on a big structure like that and a much more reasonable engineering wise uh, concept is um, tiles that are basically light sails that are basically um, thin enough so that the radiation pressure from the star pushes them out with the same force that gravity pulls them in so that they basically just hover just think about a kite Mm -hmm. A kite that is sort of drifting in the wind. In the same way, you can have a kite, a tile, drifting, basically hovering the star with the force of the light pushing it out, balanced by the force of gravity pulling it in. And if you put a lot of these like tiles, you can cover a sphere around the star so that you can extract the energy of the star. So in that case... A Dyson sphere could be made of those tiles that are light sails. And if the star evolves eventually after billions of years, and 
becomes much more luminous, then it will break apart this structure. Or if there are asteroids hitting it, it will break apart. And I wrote a paper just a month ago, published it, where I said, well, maybe Oumuamua, which was pushed by reflecting sunlight and was thin and, and flat based on the model that I discussed, maybe that was a piece of a broken Dyson sphere, you know, sort of space uh-huh. trash that was left behind. Right. That's an interesting possibility. I'm Maureen Blasky, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. This is all super fascinating to me. Light mm-hmm. sails. And I'll just say that I loved Avi's book, Extraterrestrial. Yeah. With, all, with, with all due respect to him, I expected it to be a lot drier than it was, but I could not put it down. I, I learned a lot from it. Well, that's what I was saying earlier, is that uh, when you are a scientist, physicist, theoretical physicist, there are some who are talented enough, I believe, that have a personality, enough personality to become effective educators. And I would include, uh, you know, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, Dr. Loeb, Michio Kaku, who's able to basically, that's what I'm saying, they're they're here not to just be in their own ivory towers of thought. And it's like, well, you, you little brain people, you don't get to understand this. And I could possibly never explain this all to you in a way that your small minds could grasp. Part of their mission, I believe, is to educate all of us. We're certainly, as, as one of his blog entries said, uh, one of his papers, that, uh, you know, we're paying for all this with public dollars. Yes. And uh, if we don't do that anymore, you got nothing to study and nobody yeah. to teach it to. So I believe that we have a right as the public to have this explained to us <laughs> in a way yes. that we can understand. Of course, certainly there's things that we're not going to get and that you often do that. And when you figure it out, come back to us and tell us. But yeah. it's still super fascinating to me. And, and, and light sails, uh, you know, when I was a, much younger, I remember yeah. Leonard Nimoy saying something that kind of creeped me out in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, saying that these these uh, extraterrestrial beings, to my small mind then, was that they could be in any form, right? You have these bacterial things or whatever's causing the, the pod people to happen. And he says, they were pushed on by the solar winds. And like, what yeah. solar winds, what are those? What's, what do you mean? And it's like, you know, that's another form of, I, I guess you could say natural propulsion, which is a, just basically, again, from the, the, the wiki entry here, just a stream of charged particles released from the upper atmosphere of the sun called the corona. So basically it's a, a stream of charged particles that mostly consisting of, a, let's see, this plasma consisting of electrons, protons, and alpha particles with kinetic energy. So it's a form of propulsion or or movement or, you know, like I said, well, look at a magnet, right? You've got electromagnetic attraction and repulsion. The repulsion is what keeps a lev train, right? Maglev train right. levitated and then able to get around a lot of the physics of friction to travel faster. Right. So anyway, it's, it's all fascinating me, but uh, but also had to creep me out. Just <laughs> there's things floating and it could be bacteria, it could be John Carpenter's The Thing buried under the ice for 100,000 years and yeah, and uh, ready yeah. to spring forth. Like that bacteria that uh, they just announced, the zombie virus. <laughs> it was uh, funny that- uh, The um, one they're bringing back. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> it was that was a funny line uh, uh, Stephen Colbert had said. Uh, and the second question is, why would you do this? Yeah. Like, why? Yeah. Don't just do this because you can. 
Anyway, yes, it's a terrific book. We highly recommend it. And again, he's laying out in this book exactly how and why he thinks Oumuamua may be an extraterrestrial drone of some kind. Basically not a totally organic object. However, it could be organic materials. We've talked about this before. Uh, because, you know, I first heard the concept in Star Trek and that you can have a spaceship made of uh, metals and, and uh, alloys and this and that, or it could be bioorganic materials. That's true. And That's still true. Uh, have the same function. It's just a different way of thinking about it. Uh, so neither one of us, though, can wait for his new book, Interstellar, due out on August 29th. And we also, uh, we didn't have time, but I wanted to ask him about that movie. Uh, yeah. The Christopher now, Nolan movie that you and I yeah. both love. Yeah. Yeah. We ran out of time on that. All right. Well, in this next section, I get to ask him about one of the coolest things that we learned from the book Extraterrestrial, yes. his book, and that's LSR. We'll circle back on why after this next segment. Roll it, Sarah. That brings me to another question. One of the things that was interesting to me to learn about in Extraterrestrial was the LSR. And when you talked about how the uh, that's the uh, local standard of rest, is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to understand this because you were saying relative to the sun, I believe, that would be what was the anchor for that. Or the suggestion that you were saying is that Amuamua may have been like a buoy and our solar system drifted past it. Is that the idea? There is this... Um frame of reference, which is obtained by averaging the random motions of the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So that it's the same thing as we discussed before with respect to the molecules of air, that at some temperature they have random motions, and you can average over that and you get sort of to the rest frame of the air locally, okay? Mm -hmm. So you can do the same thing for the stars. You replace the molecules of air with stars moving randomly. They have some random motions. You average over that and you get to the local rest frame of the Milky Way galaxy. And you can do that near the sun. And the sun itself represents one of these molecules moving relative to that frame. So the sun moves at tens of kilometers per second right. relative to the local standard of rest. Every star in the vicinity of the sun is moving relative to that frame because this frame was obtained by averaging the motions. So another way to think of it is as a local parking lot. You know, you have the center of town and uh, there are cars buzzing by in all directions. And if you were to average over the cars, you would get to the frame of the town where, or the parking lot where nothing moves, uh, you know. Um, and so you can have the speed of all the cars relative to that frame. Right. The amazing thing about Oumuamua was it was at rest in the local standard of rest and only at a level that only one in 500 stars shares. So if you were to suggest that it came from a nearby star, that would not be reasonable because it should have inherited the speed of the parent star. And yet it was at rest in that frame. And as you said, it's just like the solar system being a giant ship that bumped into a buoy that was at rest to start with. And the question is, why was it like that? And, uh, you know, you can imagine um, an array of um, objects like Oumuamua, which are floating in interstellar space. So that's another possible origin that is not of a Dyson a piece of a Dyson sphere, but just imagine a lot of them sort of like uh, road posts that are used for navigation through interstellar space. And uh, you would put them in the local standard of rest at any point. And, and then if there is a, an interstellar craft, it would be able to 
tell its location based on all these road posts, or it could be relay stations for communication. So we don't know what its purpose was because, first of all, we were surprised that it was discovered and we didn't collect enough data on it. But the best way to proceed is to find another object like Oumuamua. And we have a dating app called the, the Vera Rubin Observatory that will start operations in Chile within a year mm-hmm. and uh, would survey the southern sky every four nights. And um, uh, we'll have a 3.2 billion pixel camera. So a thousand times more pixels than your cell phone. And that would be an amazing data set to search for the next Oumuamua. Yeah, I, b- I believe that's the one you might have mentioned when you were on Joe Rogan a while back, that it's like 20 terabytes of data every time it's turned on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a long time ago, by the way, two, two years ago. And yeah. that's when my book came out. And um, since then, I had 2,500 uh, interviews. Oh, my God. This was one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So well, let me ask you one other question then about Oumuamua. What was it about its course changing that suggested that the change wasn't relative to the gravitational influence of the sun, but more specifically just to possibly just sunlight? Well, first of all, we know exactly what is the gravitational force that the sun exerts on, or acceleration that it exerts on any object, because we know the mass of the sun to a very high precision. This object exhibited a deviation from its path that was equivalent, I mean, if you want to think about it in a simple way, it was equivalent to the sun having less mass, a tenth of a percent, one part in a thousand less mass than we know it has, okay? Even though it sounds small, it was actually a big effect that was easily measurable. And in fact, just yesterday, there was a new paper that reanalyzed the data and confirmed that indeed there was this non-gravitational acceleration at the level reported. And And this acceleration declined inversely with distance squared from the sun. So as I said, it's just like gravity, except it was a push away from the sun. So it's as if the sun's mass was lower than it actually is. And that led me to suggest maybe it is the sunlight that is pushing it, as if it was a sail, a very thin object, because in that case, you will get exactly a, a force that declines inversely with distance squared, and it will be a smooth force. And we didn't see a cometary tail. There was no dust or gas around it visible. So that was the suggestion. And three years later, there was another object discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii. It was given the name 2020SO and was discovered in September 2020. And it showed an excess push away from the sun as a result of reflecting sunlight. And there was no cometary tail there as well. And the astronomers discovered a few weeks later that it was actually a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in 1966. And, you know, it illustrates the fact that if you have thin walls, as there were in this rocket booster, and it was made of stainless steel, therefore it didn't evaporate, then you get a behavior very similar to that of Oumuamua. And so in a way, you know, it confirmed that such a behavior is generic for thin artificial objects. They don't need to be designed as light sails. They can just be thin. We know that the 2020 SO was artificial because we made it. Question is, who made Oumuamua? 
Right. So that co- and that's the other reason that would rule out the gravitational influence would be more like a slingshot, right? It would accelerate away. Oh no, the thing is we know it we know it so well that yeah. uh, we can subtract it off. So what I'm talking about is an excess force. So it's not as if, you know, this force behaved in ways that would tell us it's not the sun's gravity. And we know the sun's gravity extremely well. Right. You can just subtract it off and see if there is any residual. It is absolutely astonishing how much you can learn from these observations from so far away. And that's the data that Avi and Kirkpatrick love because the data is the data. You might not know what it means, but you can measure it and try to figure it out. Well, I thought one of the most fascinating things about extraterrestrial, and this is something that Forrest wanted to ask about too, was the rendering. Because when you, you get to the point in the book and you're like a broad swath of people, at our station anyway, not at your level of, of work that you're doing, they see that picture of the long, thin rock, the cigar <laughs> rock. Yeah. But you were you get to this chapter, I always remember looking at it, and you turn the page and it's like, I think it's about a millimeter thick. This is a whole different thing from what it's the world is. It's a completely different thing. It's a completely different. Just think about a piece of paper, okay, tumbling in the wind. Yeah. The piece of paper is extremely thin. And imagine it being strong so that it doesn't bend or anything. But most of the time, you will never, you will not see it edge on, like razor thin. Uh, you would uh, see it uh, sideways, right? Uh, projected on the sky. And it would look like a cigar when it's sideways because it will be an elongated object that has some thickness to it. And that's what the artist illustrated. But it's simply because a flat object would appear like a cigar when, you know, you look at it sideways. And in fact, there was an analysis. I didn't do it. A, a very detailed paper from 2019 that was written by Sergei Mashenko, very detailed, trying to fit the data on the reflected light from Oumuamua and um, concluded that the 90% confidence that it should have been flat, okay. uh, disc-like, not cigar-shaped. Okay. Well, the artist was simply uninformed. This was an artist that uh, wanted to convey the idea that you know, as the object tumbles, the amount of light reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And so people said, oh, it's just like a cigar tumbling. Then it, the amount of area that you see on the sky changes by a factor of 10. No, but you can get that effect also from a flat object as long as it's not edge on. I mean, if it's edge on, you will get much more than a factor of 10. But the likelihood of that happening is pretty slim. That's what makes it so interesting, because in addition to those dimensions, you're also positing that it's very shiny. I'm not positing anything. I'm just following the data. Right. And the data indicated that uh, it, it reflects more sunlight than a typical asteroid. You know, in order to find out how much light it reflects, we would need to know its area. If you know the area, then you know the reflectance, okay? Because you know how much sunlight is impinging on the object and then what do you, and you can tell how much you see, which is the, related to the reflectance. Now, how can we pin down the area? Well, we can do that if we had a telescope like the Webb telescope, because the Webb telescope can detect the emission from the surface of an object as a result of its surface temperature, so the heat emitted. And we know what the temperature is pretty well at a given distance from the sun. So the temperature of the surface of almost any object is dictated by the distance from the sun, okay? And that's why 
life is possible on Earth and around the position of the Earth, but farther away, the surfaces of objects are frozen. Closer in, they're boiled off. Okay, so the distance from the sun tells you how warm the surface is. And so based on the distance of an object from the sun, we know the temperature. And then if a telescope like the Webb telescope, which is sensitive to the heat, infrared radiation coming from the object, if it measures the emission from the surface of the object, we can pin down the size, the area that is emitting it, because we know the temperature. And that would allow us to infer the reflectance. So the only problem is that the Webb telescope was not out there when Oumuamua was discovered. Uh, it just, you know, the Webb telescope was launched five years later. So we didn't have that luxury. But in the future, when a new Oumuamua shows up, we will be able to tell how much reflectance. And so if Oumuamua was 20 meters in size, it should have been a perfect mirror. If it were 200 meters in size, it should have had a reflectance of um, about um, a percent or so, which is sort of typical of uh, rocks. So we don't know what its size was, so we can just argue about it. But um, in the future, we will. And the other thing with the Webb telescope, it's a million miles away from Earth. So it gives us a different vantage point in terms of looking at an object. You will have a telescope on Earth and the Webb telescope a million miles away looking at the same object. It's sort of like having two eyes which allow you to, to gauge the distance to an object and pinpoint the trajectory of the object in three dimensions very precisely. So we will know also whether any future object has propulsion because we would measure the motion of the object in three dimensions very well using the Webb telescope and a telescope on Earth. So what I'm, I'm trying to say that in the future, when we find the next Oumuamua on our next blind date, we will know much more about it. I'm Dan Burkholz, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's unleash Forrest and get back to the show. I love this idea of the light sail. I love sails mm. in general when it comes to science fiction. I've mentioned <laughs> this true. a bunch of times on the show, but when uh, in the TV special, the Ray Bradbury Martian Chronicles, right. when they came on those ships that had sails on them on the surface of Mars mm -hmm. that were really just sliding across the sand and making a horrible sand slidey sound. It's horrifying. Oh. <laughs> and that guy came up and he had a giant V for a mask. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm still freaked out by that. There's all manner of of concepts that uh, our simian brains can wrap uh, wrap our heads around, like light sails and this idea though of uh, yeah, like a high powered laser being yeah. uh, used as propulsion. But yeah. also, uh, remember in uh, Tron, they had a similar yes. thing where you had a beam and a, uh, a vessel would travel along that beam in a straight line. Yeah. Other things, I remember uh, Dr. Stanton Freeman talking about, uh, I think it's something he was working on. And if you, I'm trying to think of the uh, the craft that was diamond shaped, that, that was proposed the possibly utilizing nuclear propulsion. He said that was a, a concept they were working on. Essentially, you would have a controlled nuclear explosion in space, one after mm -hmm. the other, propelling mm -hmm. a craft, and you could get it going pretty fast at that point. But is it practical? Uh, you know, again, it's a, you're creating a lot of uh, dirty radiation from that, and so that is something though. He said uh, they were working on. I believe he had a hand in that. 
And then you have other ideas as, uh, <laughs> this is another very contentious name, but Bob Lazar talking about gravity accelerators or gravity engines, just very briefly, whether you believe this or not, it's just another concept, so don't get upset. But the idea that he was saying is that you have element 115, I think, again, this is just off the top of my head, is that the exchange of energy or conversion of energy was so powerful, it would open up a bag in space-time mm -hmm. that uh, your craft could then propel itself within this bag. And then you keep doing that. And so that is your form of pulsion. It's a workaround from gravity and friction and all these other things that would normally kill us if we traveled that way as human beings inside a craft. Again, we have blood that needs to be pumped. You start to yes. gray out after 10 Gs. Well, in this case, uh, you and I look for uh, uh, different descriptions that we can tie together. And I always thought that Bob Lazar's description that the craft, it's got two modes, right? So you've got a slow approach and then you've got a fast moving approach and the craft is angled down differently, tilted on its side right. uh, for one of those. And that again, perhaps Terry Lovelace clocked that or just came up with it on his own if he's not telling the truth. I, Or he saw the craft that way, which was like a five-story building on its side approaching slowly. Yeah. Which is yeah. what Bob Lazar described. So anyway... Anyway, the point is that there's all these different concepts of propulsion, and I would bet that all of them have been explored at one point. But here, we're talking about something that is actually, uh, we can understand, and it, it's not zipping around fast. It just, uh, this is a long game, right? This is Right. This is the marathon, not the sprint when it comes to these kinds of probes. And again, the thing, if it's, if it's paper thin and it's a light sail, it's uh, some kind of embedded technology within that. I love it for its elegance. Yeah. I love it yeah. in that it's uh, the simpler it is, but the more complex things it does, like the Met Sphere. Again, we were talking about that. It's like when you x-ray it, it's not a bunch of, uh, you know, gears and levers and, and whirring gyroscopes and a little, uh, a little robot man <laughs> driving the thing inside. Right, right. It's maybe three little dots of something that uh, is off-world, and whatever it does, that's all it needs to work. And uh, maybe it's broken, like the bed sphere. Like one of them looked burst, so maybe this thing is dead or inactive, a remnant of a lost civilization. But again, going back, this is just fun to think about. But again, it's I love the trope of ancient things waiting to be reactivated, as you see in sci-fi, like the oxygen yeah. generator from Total Recall on Mars just waiting for that uh, that three-fingered alien hand to come down and press the yeah. button. Or the running clock, talk about Tron, that's been running for 20 years, generating this digital world in which he has been, uh, Jeff Bridges has been sucked into. Or all these different things where it's just waiting for somebody to reactivate it. Well, and I had this question, and I'm not sure we got it answered, mm -hmm. where there was the question of whether or not when it departed our solar system or started to head out from it, if it seemed to be doing that in a way that was unnatural to just a gravitational slingshot or whatever. It took an anomalous path as far as right. they could tell. Yeah. So and it wasn't as... Uh, something right. we should pay attention to. Yeah, because here's the thing. It's, uh, well, how we know the word retrograde and that, uh, look, that's not a new concept. It's just a, when you look through a telescope... Uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, planets seem to be moving backwards. Well, that's 
if you track it and study this stuff, and I believe the ancient cultures, uh, the Maya, the Olmec perhaps, they tracked this stuff and understood it. And uh, we just saw that uh, news article where they think they've cracked the Mayan calendar. Yeah. And that they weren't looking broad enough as the Mayan view. The, the, uh, they were looking at the 100-foot view when it's, uh, as you like to say, 10,000-foot view. Yeah. When you stretch it out more and you broaden your horizons, maybe quite literally with time and, and uh, celestial movements, then you understand what they were thinking of. They were, again, they were, all, they were also into the long haul. Yeah, uh, with the Mayan calendar, I uh, we did. I just read about this. They said that they needed to base it on a forty-five year span to figure it out. Right, and yeah. so that's where they, they just hadn't plugged in the right numbers, the right, like you just said, the right time span to calculate it. You know. Yeah, that's what you're wondering, and perhaps this is what uh, Doctor Loeb was running is, are we not looking at this thing the right way? The data, right? Are we not looking at it the right way? And we should look at it, not just, it's like, well, it's just a big rock chunk and it's probably off gassing something. It's like, well, that's not what the No, that's not what's happening because there was no right. sign of any off gassing. But yes, to your point, I recall that uh, this thing did not exit or we did not exit. Again, that, that depends on your, your view and how uh, you calculate movement. This thing did not move as mathematically expected. Yeah, I think that's what he said. And I think if, if he hasn't said that already, hopefully he'll say it better than we did before yeah. the end of the show. All right, well, in this next section, we're going to talk about how his peers reacted to his suggestion that Amuamua might have been alien technology. One of my favorite things that you had said in Extraterrestrial was you were talking about with Galileo how the clerics refused to look through the telescope. And then you talked a lot about, and on various shows that you've been on, you've talked additionally about the echo chamber that can kind of be created by scientific conservatism in terms of looking at the kinds of ideas that you seem very open to. Do you feel now with the momentum that you have that there's maybe some change happening in the scientific community with regard to this stuff? Well, the thing is, I don't have any account on social media, so I don't care how many likes I get, but I get the feedback from many people that what I say makes a lot of sense. And, you know, a couple of years ago when I published Extraterrestrial, it was obvious that common sense is not commonplace, okay? People are not attending to the possibility that there may be technological objects near Earth Seriously enough, it is a real possibility because we sent five probes to interstellar space in the past half a century. These were Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. And we will send many more in the future. And most stars from billions of years before the sun, there was plenty of time for those probes to reach us by now. So it's common sense to check. And what I realize is, as soon as my book came out, well, first of all, the SETI community was up in arms. They were saying that I pissed them off and that that uh, this subject, you know, should be banned from conferences. Really? They organized. Yes. They, in fact, initiated a document that said that unidentified objects near Earth uh, should not be discussed in their conferences. And they explicitly said that it, it's a problem for them when this subject is being discussed. And I say, well, that's just like a cat used to feeding all of, um, you know, uh, cow milk and then uh, realizing people talking about um, almond milk and saying, I loathe 
almond milk. You know, I cannot believe it. I don't want to see it. I don't want anyone to talk about it. And that makes little sense. It's an example of scientific intolerance, which is completely unprofessional. Let me give you an example. Suppose we are searching for the nature of dark matter. We don't know what it is. So one possibility is that it's an axion, a particle of very low mass. Another possibility is much more massive particle, like the so-called weakly interacting massive particle, the lightest supersymmetric particle. And the Large Hadron Collider is searching for the latter, the, the second type. So imagine those that community of people searching for the lightest supersymmetric particle saying, we will ban any presentation on the axion in our scientific conferences. That's unprofessional. And the point is that it's just an alternative way of looking for technological signatures, okay? So instead of listening for radio signals the way we did for 70 years, and by the way, here is the breaking news. We haven't found anything. Right. <laughs> so they've been doing it for 70 years. So right. why insist on something that doesn't work? And it was a method pioneered by Frank Drake. Okay. Just because humanity invented radio communication, you know, we are almost abandoning it now. You know, we have uh, fiber optics, we have other means of communications. So why would the civilization that is a million or a billion years more mature than we are, use radio. But at any event, it's possible, okay? So we search, we look for it. But at the same time, instead of waiting for a phone call at home, uh, here is an alternative method. Check your backyard, check your mailbox, whether you have any packages, because those you know, could have been there even if the senders died. Whereas for a phone call, you need the, whoever calls you to be active at the time that you're listening. Right. Whereas, uh, in, uh, and the radio signals that were sent a billion years ago, they are now a billion light years away. They are not near us. Whereas the packages that were sent a billion years ago, they are still around us because with chemical propulsion, they, they move at a speed that is 10 times slower than the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy. So gravity of the Milky Way galaxy binds them and we can look for them. So it makes a lot of sense to at least consider that as a possibility and engage in that. Why should that be banned? So that was the first very strange uh, pushback that I received. And they were quite vocal and violent and, and, and aggressive and, and dismissive and anything you want to, to think about. And then, of course, the mainstream of the same, I mean, they were just trying to line up with the mainstream and, and be nice to the mainstream just so that the mainstream will say, okay, we can fund you at a little bit of funding, you know, at the periphery of astronomy. And I said to myself, you know, it's, we shouldn't apologize for searching for something that makes so much sense. You know, that, that is supposed to be mainstream, actually. And so I established the Galileo Project because there were many people that um, came to my home and expressed um, the inspiration they got from this vision and, and were willing to donate funds to the Galileo Project. And that now it includes also the expedition. And then uh, over time, you know, um, I don't get as much pushback anymore. But SETI community is now sort of neutral and willing to listen and uh, not uh, confronting me on a personal level, right? which is an improvement, I must say. <laughs> and then you have the bloggers. Those are people who claim that they are astrophysicists, but haven't written a single scientific paper in at least 15 years. Right. In fact, one of them put it on his Twitter handle. I am the blogger who Avi says didn't publish anything in a decade. 
as if that uh, ignorance is something to be proud of. <laughs> and uh, I say, you know, if there is a commentator that looks at a soccer match, the commentator is not privileged to tell the soccer players how to play soccer. I am a scientist. I write papers every few weeks. Okay, I am doing. I'm in the trenches. I lead a scientific project. I do the science, and I'm talking about it. Those who do not do the science, first of all, should not call themselves astrophysicists or scientists because they are not. They are not practice. I mean, it's like someone that doesn't play soccer but claims that he's a soccer player. Okay, that's not appropriate. Or a plumber that says, you know, I'm a plumber but I can't fix anything. That's not a plumber. Okay, but at the same time, they should not say bad things or tell those who are doing the work what to do because those who are doing the work are putting time into the work. Those on the benches, they are just lazy. They don't do any work. They're just talking about what the other people are doing and saying bad yes. things about it. Like what? That makes no sense, especially when dealing with a scientific project or scientific work that requires a lot of effort and time. So if you don't want to upload the, the work, you know, at least don't comment negatively about it because other people are doing it. And moreover, we are not taking funds out of the search for dark matter that these bloggers are very enthusiastic about. Mm -hmm. Why are they enthusiastic about that? Because they want to garner as much likes as they can on social media and in the public. And these topics are popular. So obviously they will speak favorably about topics that are popular. The minute the Galileo project will find data on a real extraterrestrial object that is beyond a reasonable doubt, at that point, you will see these bloggers switching to the exact opposite view and saying, of course, we were talking about it. A lot of people were talking about it. This is nothing new. It's obvious. And that reminds me of you know, what the philosopher Schopenhauer said. He said that a, a truth goes through three stages. The first stage is people ridiculing it. The right. second stage is people arguing against it. And I'm happy to say that I now entered that second stage because about Oumuamua, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was a paper in Nature claiming that it's a water iceberg that was transformed in interstellar space by cosmic rays. And we showed that this model missed a term that is a million times bigger in the energy conservation equation than the terms that were used by the authors. Okay, we showed it a day later. And by the way, I approached 14 science writers that wrote the story about the nature paper and said there is a mistake in that paper and some of them replied we cannot add a footnote to our story right now because we don't want to confuse our readers Ugh. so talk about politics yeah not being guided by evidence by rationality if the same thing happens in the context of science reporting what Complaints should be voiced about politics. You know that science is supposed to be about rational thinking, bringing clarity and showing transparency. So if someone made a mistake, you don't need to say it must be a mistake. You can just report. Avi Loeb wrote a paper showing that they forgot a term that makes a huge difference to the conclusions. Okay, but you can just say that. Right. Anyway, so my point is, altogether, we are now at the second phase where people say it's wrong, but it's not really wrong. And then the third phase that Schopenhauer suggested was uh, when everyone says it's self-evident. So hopefully we'll get to that phase within a year or two that everyone will say it's self-evident. There is nothing new. This was discussed decades ago. 
Well, as we can see, the scientific community is just like anything else. There's mm-hmm. a ton of politics and mm-hmm. every legend, whether there's sci- a lot of science or a little science or the people are arguing when there's no science, as we've seen, you know, we've over 200 and whatever, 60 episodes now or 259 episodes of the show. We've seen this. We've seen it with, right. we always talk about Earhart and how everyone was arguing the different factions about the different philosophies about what happened to her. And if you believed one, you couldn't believe the other one. Just like if you, Forrest always jokes about, you believe in Bigfoot, you can't believe in ghosts. Why do you believe in ghosts? Well, you don't believe in this <laughs> well, the, big hairy ape or whatever. No, it's, everything's there's, not there's, mutually there's, exclusive to me, right? Nobody's getting along. Yeah, right. yeah. And it, But then in all of this, in all these topics, with and without science, with wild speculation, where both parties are speculating wildly, or the other ones are super well-educated, there's still folks that don't even want to think about anything that hasn't been conceived of before, you know, that humanity's not familiar with. Exactly like the clerics who didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope. Well, like, he's listen, like, no, if you yeah. just look, you'll understand. No, we're not looking and you're in trouble, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, the world's <laughs> a like, lot more digestible and palatable when it's simpler things to think about and yeah. when it's uh, more complicated things and then it gets uncomfortable. It raises uncomfortable questions. So that yeah. prevails to this day with human beings. I remember I had a really terrific uh, AP history teacher at high school and uh, we were discussing just, you know, history. And he said, well, you know, back in the day it was a little easier because there was less to know. Right. That it was known about the world. Now we've got so much, but we still don't like things that uh, don't go down easy and are problematic to think about. And that's never changed. So so here again, you have some data that's proven to be problematic. But the easiest thing to say is like, it's just this, that's it. Yeah. Because anything else is impossible. And things have always been impossible throughout human history until they're not. Until they're not. All right. So in this next section, I think we got a little under his skin about the illustration <laughs> of Muamua. We spoke just a few minutes ago about how it actually looked more like a piece of paper or something thin, but that picture you always see when it's written about is pretty famous online. And when the story broke out in 2017, that picture was everywhere. It was like a long cigar-shaped rock. But Avi says that's not what it is at all. And uh, not only that... Well, he gets pretty adamant about how ridiculous he thinks that illustration is. And what I wanted to know is how do these things get decided? Who's doing this? Who sets... The narrative. Well, there's no rules when it's so far away. It's just a point of light. Somebody just says, hey, this is what I'm going to make it. That's what I'm going to say is that it's not just the artist. It's like, well, that guy drew a picture of it. We're going to go with that. Yeah. And uh, he gave us he gave us permission. So, and we paid him $200 for his illustration. Yeah. Artist conception is that somebody formulated that image. Right. And if it hadn't been 2017, I would have said somebody or AI, well, but AI, AI Midjourney well, was not operating in 2017. No, and yeah. I, I wonder, the, I mean, that's a great question, Scott, if AI had the mathematical capability to... To guess at what it might look like. To guess at what it might be. And what we've learned, again, from uh, people like Professor Gary Nolan is that AI does not have very good comprehension or execution of spatial relationships. Yeah. One basic thing he said is that you can tell AI, it's like, okay, give me a red cube on top of a blue cube and you'll get a red and a blue cube, but it may not necessarily be in the order one on top of the other that you asked for because it doesn't really get that, which is fascinating to me. And, and also I never really understood this is that it, it has trouble doing basic math. Yeah. Or sometimes of mathematical computations, which is interesting to me. So it's, it, it is limited, but I do wonder if you just plugged in the data to your point, 
and it was able to understand and interpret that, what would it come up looking like? Yeah, hey, somebody get to mid-journey right now. Honestly, if you if you have time to feed a bunch of cues, what you should do is read the book Extraterrestrial, make a list of parameters for how Avi describes the Muamua object, and then work with mid-journey to create a rendering of that object based on those parameters. You'll have to keep redoing right. it. When you get something good, let us know. Well, this is my point about this, is that this was a conscious decision by some authority to literally paint this picture in this way to form public thought. And it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't like, oh, I don't know, is it mushroom-shaped? I don't know, just paint something. Some person of authority or a consensus of people in authoritative positions decided it was going to look like that to the public. And as the public, we don't know any better. We're not crunching the data. It's like, I guess it's just a long doo-doo shaped rock. And then you can forget about it. Because if this thing was depicted as a giant foil or just flat and somewhat reflective, hanging out in space like a tarpaulin, then we would have questions. What do you mean? Yeah. It looks like that's not right. Because now, like I said, when you set the public opinion that it's just a big, weird-looking, long rock, we're able to go on about our business much easier than if yeah. it's a giant, flat, you know, football field-sized object. I'm not convinced anyone took it that seriously. I'm not convinced that the scientists don't even care what the public sees. They're not no, thinking but, about yeah. that or, or care about our reaction to it. Just as somebody drew it and it went in the articles and the scientists didn't even see it until after the article came out and they went to read what they said. I don't know, man. I think that uh, I would more of a mind that however this came about, and again, I don't know. This is speculation purely on my part. But we all know that when you see that uh, these animations that are done with NASA's help about how uh, the Sojourner or all these rovers drop on Mars. It's like, well, I guess that's how it happens. But you weren't there, and uh, rarely do you get a, a full video because something else has got to be taken video that has to be sent back to Earth. We just go with that because that's all we know. You're telling us, uh, you guys are scientists, you're telling us this is how it looks, so we're going to go with that. And I would say whether it was intentional or just, uh, as you might posit, accidental, the effect is the same. And that you see it's a giant, weird-looking rock. It's like, I don't know, maybe that is uh, normal for outer space. You know, not in our solar system, but maybe I think that's part of the argument that uh, maybe these kinds of weird things are splintered and littered throughout the universe, and then we just happen to come upon one. That's a lot easier to just set it aside and, and like I said, go on about your business, not start to raise questions, what is this thing, and what can we learn from it? And had, uh, as I said, had we found out about it earlier, and had we learned about it earlier and gotten more data from it, who knows what more we would know about it. Well, Avi, we very much appreciate your time tonight. We're wrapping up here, but uh, before you go, what can you tell our listeners about your new book, Interstellar, that's uh, coming out on August 29th of uh, 2023? Interstellar is about what they encounter with uh, an extraterrestrial interstellar technological object would mean for humanity, how it will transform us in the process. Oh, and cool. um, I think it's extremely important because um, as of now, a lot of discussion is dedicated to the alien that was created in our technological belly called GPT-4, or maybe the next step will be GPT-5. 
It has 100 trillion connections, GPT-4, and that's only a factor of six uh, shy of the 600 trillion connections of the human brain. So we're getting to build a system that is as complex as the human brain, and we won't be able to figure it out as much as we can't figure the human brain. And it's sort of a baby that we gave birth to in our technological belly without the ability to control it or to... And so, you know, people are sounding the alarm, but so this is an alien that we created. Just like giving birth, you know, some mothers uh, tell me very often, you know, something came out of my belly, you know, (laughs) it looked like an alien to me, but we did it with AI. And what I'm talking about is that there could be a more important revolution that is not our own creation. And that is learning about our future from another civilization who went through that already billions of years ago by detecting its own technological devices. And uh, my book, uh, Interstellar, talks about it. So I very much encourage you to have a look. Can't wait. One point of clarification. You were saying that we very precisely know the mass of the sun and the energy that it would uh, put on an object like Oumuamua. And yet it seemed, as you're saying that, or would you say that the object seemed to have changed the energy output to use to correct its course and that the reading should have been different in the way that the uh, trajectory was affected and the way that uh, the way that it moved out of our solar system or our solar system moved out of its way. Right. You're say, would you consider that intelligent control? No, um, you can get the effect of what the the object exhibited, just as a result of the object being thin, sort of like a sail, and reflecting sunlight. That's all. Because the excess acceleration of the object that, that was not gravitational can be assigned just to the reflection of sunlight. So the only thing you need to do is make an object thin enough. And as I said, the 2020 SO, this uh, rocket booster that NASA launched, exhibited the same effect of being pushed by reflecting sunlight, no cometary tail. So it doesn't need to be operational. It could be space trash. Whether it was operational or not, we don't know because we didn't collect enough data on it. Well, speaking of data, that this leads me to my next question. As you'll see over my shoulder here, that is uh, the artist's impression. And I just to give credit, uh, of course, that comes from the ESA, the European Space Agency, NASA, ESO, and then uh, I believe the artist uh, M. Kornmesser. And that is offered as a wallpaper on the uh, ESAHubble.org website. And this is a big point of contention that Scott and I noticed uh, because reading some of your blog articles talking about scientific virtue signaling and basic impressions. And then earlier you talked about human impressions having an effect on different reports. And here we see, I can only assume that the same data has been presented to all scientists in the uh, astronomy community, and they come up with different conclusions. And that to me, we come across this all the time, is that something is presented as, well, this weird thing happened, but that's not what it means. And it it comes down to basically human behavior here, because I'd like to read you this caption for the image. It says, this artist's impression shows the first interstellar object discovered in the solar system, Oumuamua. Observations made with the NASA ESA Hubble telescope and others show that the object is moving faster than predicted while leaving the solar system. So we've talked about that. And it says, it goes on to say, researchers assume that venting material from its surface due to solar heating 
is responsible for this behavior. The outgassing can be seen in this artist's impression as a subtle cloud being ejected from the side of the object facing the sun. And then most curiously, it ends with the sentence, as outgassing is a behavior typical for comets, the team thinks that Oumuamua's previous classification as an interstellar asteroid has to be corrected. You have to understand, this is just a snapshot in history right. where people f- said, at first they said it's a comet, it evaporates. It must evaporate because it's being pushed by a rocket effect. And then they realized, using data from the Spitzer Space Telescope, there is no evaporation evident. And the limits were extremely tight on any gas or dust, carbon-based molecules surrounded. So this idea is wrong. The people who wrote this caption would admit, if you were to ask them now, that what they wrote is ruled out scientifically, okay? And the image that you are looking at is therefore wrong. Now, science is work in progress. That's what needs to to be understood. That's how the sausage is made. And I'm sorry for all these people that have an idealistic view of science as if we know the answer in advance or we get straight to it. This illustrates it because at first people thought it's a comet. Then they said, oh, no, maybe it's an asteroid. But then they realized, oh, it's being pushed. So maybe it's a comet. And then they said, no, 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 it can't be a comet because we don't see anything evaporating from it. So the most recent thing said it's a comet, but the cometary tail is invisible. Okay, And it's just like the folktale of Hans Christian Andersen. I'm the kid who says the emperor has no clothes. And here the emperor is Oumuamua, the clothes are the cometary tail, the comma around it. I say there was no cometary tail. We didn't see it. And other people are now saying, oh, the, there is a beautiful cometary tail. It's just invisible. <laughs> and that is completely identical to the storyline of Hans Christian Andersen. Moreover, one of them even said, oh, it shows its cometary tail when we don't look at it. And when we look at it, it doesn't. And that's why I called it in a review paper that I wrote, the comet Oumuamua. And I said to him, well, how can you do that? Because it's just like going to the zoo and saying an elephant is actually a zebra, but it shows its stripes when we look away. How can that be the mainstream view? This just shows you how non-commonsensical, even mainstream scientists get in order to bring, to push the discrepancies under the carpet so that nobody sees them. If we call it a comet, then everyone moves on. Let's just call it a comet, irrespective of whether it was a comet or not a comet, just so that everyone would feel comfortable and we move on. Well, that's the position we, we come across quite a bit in a lot of the genre and topics we talk about is that people just want to say, that's what it was. It's nothing to look at no worries, let's move on. The need for cognitive closure. And then we also, uh, but would you say it's also getting back to a a sense of, uh, when you talk about the emperor and imperialism of a mainstream scientific narrative that they're trying to push because that image that you see behind me here is the one that's stuck in the public's mind. Who cares? Who cares about which image stuck in the mind of anyone? You know, that's completely irrelevant. Just think about Galileo Galilei. He was put in house arrest so nobody would listen to him. Did that change the trajectory of the Earth around the sun? I keep saying that humans are not the arbitrators. Reality is whatever it is. Whether you paint a million pictures like this one and convince yourself that it was a comet would not change the fact that it was not a comet. Okay, You can believe in the storyline. That's what happens in politics. That's why you have polarization, because 
One tribe of people builds a storyline of one sort. Another tribe of people builds an opposite storyline. And they are sure that what they are arguing for is correct and are willing to use even violence against each other in politics. And I say in science, that's not the way we should work. We should work together, be intrigued by something that doesn't look familiar and say, that's great. It's an opportunity to learn something new rather than say, oh, forget about it, let's move on. If there is an anomaly, let's study it, let's get more data that will guide us. Because gathering data, gathering evidence is a method of unifying us. Because once it will become beyond any reasonable doubt, it will be clear, then all of us can agree on what it is. That's the scientific method. So science is better than politics. That's all I'm trying to say, because in science we can come together. And that's why we should shy away from people expressing opinions and prejudice. These are lazy individuals, either wanting to impress each other, to get more likes on social media, but are not willing to engage in the hard work necessary to collect the evidence. Hard work. As long as you are not putting the hard work to collect the evidence, you don't have a privilege to express your opinion because expressing an opinion before the evidence is collected, you know, is actually harmful. It prevents others from doing the work. It, it basically ridicules the collection of evidence. And that's one path that we can take going back to the dark ages, okay, which were not founded on, on knowledge, scientific knowledge, but were founded on opinions. And that's what people need to understand, that we can't use humans as detectors, as, as our guide for finding the truth. We have to use instruments. We have to use the scientific method. It worked, and it will work again and again. Is there any one problem or outcome you would like to see solved by yourself in your career or looking towards the future? Is there one major thing that uh, you're hoping we can accomplish here in the near future? Well... <laughs> Within the coming year, not the future, within the coming year, I'm hopeful that we will have interesting evidence about extraterrestrial technological objects near Earth, starting with the expedition to the Pacific Ocean and continuing with unidentified aerial phenomena or interstellar objects like Oumuamua. Within the coming year, or maybe two years, but I'm not talking about the long distance future or my career or the people after me. I'm talking right now. And the only reason that this didn't happen in the past is because people had opinions and did not seek the evidence. So we are taking the road that was not taken, which is using science to collect the evidence. And when you take the road that was not taken, there is a chance you will find low-hanging fruit because nobody took that road and collected these fruits. Avi, this has been an outstanding interview for us. I want to thank you so much for your time today. We know you're a very busy man. We hope that uh, we might be able to reach out to you again in the future, maybe after Interstellar's out or something, if you have the time. Or specifically, after you get back from New Guinea, if you find something there, please, we would love to talk to you about it uh, in the future. It will be my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so in conclusion, there's a couple of things I want to say here. The first one is going to be the kind of thing that would, I think, drive Avi crazy because mm. 
there's just no way to disprove what I'm about to posit here. And that goes back to the happenings at Skinwalker Ranch and the trickster <laughs> and the paranormal right. and the trickster idea and this, this ongoing idea that these things not only refuse to be measured, but like to interfere with you trying to measure them. And that's something that you're never going to be able to explain to a scientist like Dr. Loeb or any scientist, frankly, who is rooted in the scientific method. And we understand that. And we understand that when we say that, folks who are strong adherents to the scientific method, and that as being the only way that anything can be done, they can just be dismissive of our idea that maybe you're being manipulated on a higher level than you could imagine. And that you're never going to get that chance. You're never going to. The minute you train the camera on the thing, trying to see it break the laws of physics, it's not going to be on the camera. It knows not to be there. It knows not to provide you mm. with any sort of evidence or sensor-related evidence because it's aware that it's being sensed much in that subatomic way mm -hmm. of the particle being measured behaves based on being measured. Is that happening on a larger level with this very, very sophisticated technology that may not even be sentient in the organic sense of the word? It may be actually electronically capable of avoiding detection. And again, I'm looking at the anomalous events at Skinwalker Ranch, and I'm wondering if that applies to any kind of craft that, uh, that the Galileo Project or perhaps SETI has been trying to find all these years it's going to refuse to be measured. And I, I don't have any way to back that up. I'm just putting it out there as an idea that there's, it's just not going to let you do it. It's not going to let you prove that it exists or that it did anything unusual. Well, those are great ideas. I mean, who knows, of course, but your idea that it has a basic program that we can't understand or that is so sophisticated yet so simply elegant that it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. I, again, talk about the, uh, the carrot report, yes. uh, bring that up. One of the, again, the, to me, these are great sci-fi ideas, except that we have real, <laughs> we have real theoretical physicists tackling these problems and looking at this like Dr. Loeb and, uh, can hopefully provide some interesting answers or a path forward for more study, which is always what we need, right? We need to look through the telescope, as he says, and keep looking and keep noting and keep calculating. And that's what science does. It's a measurement and calculation uh, methodology for understanding. And in this case, I always think about something that was described. I think it was in the carrot report about code instructions, a set of instructions. I've talked about this before that were somehow imprinted on the side of a piece of technology, a device. The way that the letters are, I mean, it gets a magical kind of principle to us, is that the letters themselves are actually the code that gets it to operate. And I've talked about, I thought it was a fascinating concept, even if it's uh, just a bunch of baloney. Say like you had a magic pen and you write on a piece of paper. Again, we're talking about the, something this thin, how is it operating? And you write on it, fold yourself up into a paper airplane and fly across the room. And the letters that you write with this magic pen are the operating code for the paper, which itself is just a piece of paper, but with this, or, you know, it could be something, a special material, but with that and the code that's on it, 
that's how it operates. And that was, again, if this report is fictitious, the imprinting on the side of these objects are actually, you could say the computer code or, or really like firmware that gets the part to operate. And what if Uumuamua, as this sheet or this thin uh, substance, had a set of uh, code or operations that, yeah, that maybe told it to be evasive. If you could fly out there with the uh, the pod from the 2001 and, and grab the edge of this thing and try and haul it back, maybe it would avoid you or it yeah. would turn on its side and be so thin you couldn't see it. Whatever it is, there could be instructions for avoidance in that its program is to just keep doing what it's doing. One of my points is that even if you were to physically get a hold of this thing, and study it or be close enough that you could observe it from a, a close distance. Think about this. You, you find a piece of some other technology that's a sensor. Say, Scott, I give you the whip antenna off my car and I hand it to you and you, you don't know what a car is. You don't see, you've never seen this technology before. You would just say, well, well, this is a very long, flexible piece of metal that you can bend and it's got a little tiny metal ball on one end and it's got threads on the other. But you would have no idea what it does or is used for if you come from a world where you don't have radio yet and transmissions to be picked up with this antenna. And it's just that piece. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not seeing yeah. the rest of the radio. Yeah. So here, maybe That's we're not seeing comparison. the rest of the whatever this thing is uh, uh, supposed to be a sensor for. Or, like I said, we don't know. Maybe it's the whole thing. And it's doing, yeah. it's, it's completely self-contained. And it's storing material that is maybe being beamed to some other collection device or civilization or intelligence. Or maybe it has to be harvested. Or maybe it's going to be collected. That's a good point. It is a good humor wrapper, a Klondike bar wrapper floating out in space that has information on it that's going to be uh, scooped up at some point by some civilization. Or maybe they've passed on and it's just floating out there doing its thing forever. And so, again, these are all wondrous, wonderful ideas to think about. And I say, why not think about them? I couldn't agree more. And I, I guess for my final wrap up, I will again come back to the LSR or their local mm -hmm. standard of rest, which was the thing that I was most fascinated about. That's the part that really blew my mind. Because remember, most folks are thinking, well, yeah, the Earth orbits the sun. So we're traveling in a circle on a relatively flat plane around the sun. Well, yeah, but the sun and our entire solar system is part of a rotating arm of the Milky Way galaxy. So that's another complex path of movement happening relative to, say, the center of the Milky Way itself. So we go around the sun and the sun goes around the center of the Milky Way. The amount of time it takes to do that, that's called a galactic year. Do you know how long that is? 230 million years, which to us is a long time, but for the history of the Earth, it's actually not super long. So we know that the Earth has gone around the sun, which has gone around the entire galaxy in rotation several times mm -hmm. since the Earth has been around. On top of that, the galaxy is moving through the universe. Now, think about the math and sophistication of leaving something like a Muamua anchored somehow in space. Think of it as not moving. Think of us as coming across it. It's stationary. Think about the use of complex gravitational calculations and infinite predictions and the future paths of not only solar systems like ours, but potentially galaxies. That makes it an intergalactic buoy 
like when the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration anchors to the seafloor in the middle of the Atlantic or the Pacific, recording storm, current, and water temperature data. Now imagine having such a great understanding of how everything in the universe is flowing that you could come along, say, 180 million years ago and plant something like that that you knew would pass the place we call home in what for us was October of 2017. And it would collect data on us when that happened. And not only interstellar, but potentially intergalactic surveyor that observes other civilizations and life forms from a safe distance. Collecting data and vanishing from our grasp before we even realize what it was. That's going to wrap up our discussion with Dr. Avi Loeb. If you've got the means and would like to see more of him, get to Contact in the Desert in Indian Wells, California, June 2nd through 4th, 2023. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. And don't forget, we will be at Small Town Monsters' first Monster Fest at the Doubletree in downtown Akron, Ohio, on June 2nd and 3rd, 2023, the same weekend. See a link in our show notes or visit smalltownmonsters.com. In the meantime, visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends and sign up to see us on the much more candid and wildly disorganized Astonishing Junk Drawer, which we often do live on video for our patrons. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Ty Persley. D-A-N-Y. Yes, it looks like Blasecki. I understand this is with no implied promise. Of- but we say Blasky. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>